0: The Old Testament reading for today comes from Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1, or rather Proverbs 1. New Testament reading is Luke 7, 31 through 35. This will be our sermon text, Luke 7, 31 through 35. Proverbs 1. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries aloud. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple?' How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity." I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then, I will, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore... They shall eat the fruit of their way, and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure, and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Let us go now to our sermon text for today, which is Luke 7:31 31-35. Here we find the words of Jesus. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and... You say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is justified by all her children. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. When I sat down to write the sermon that I preached last Sunday, my original intention was to go further in Luke and to cover the passage that we are now considering today. And, and that would have worked just fine. Really, Luke 7:18 through 35 is a unit. This pericope is all about John the Baptist. Firstly, the disciples of John are sent to Jesus to ask him if he is the one who is to come. Secondly, Jesus answers them, first indeed, by performing miracles, and then with His words, and He sends them back to John. Thirdly, Jesus testifies to the crowd concerning John's greatness. Remember, He said there's no one greater than John. He's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He's more than a prophet. He is the prophet about whom other prophets have prophesied. And finally, in the passage we have opened before us today, Jesus offers an analysis of the people of his generation as it pertains to their rejection or acceptance of John and of himself. Clearly, this passage that we are considering today, that is Luke 7, 31-35, goes with the previous one, Luke 7, 24-34. And I want you to consider three links between these two passages by way of introduction. I think... Making these observations will help us to understand the text that is before us today. Notice, firstly, that Jesus is speaking to the same crowd that was mentioned in verse 24. There we read, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind, etc.? What is said in verses 31 through 35 is a continuation of that speech. So, Jesus is speaking to the same audience. Secondly, Jesus is still talking about John the Baptist. He is addressing the varied responses to John and to himself from amongst the people. As Luke 7.30 says, Many rejected the purpose or plan of God for or in themselves, not having been baptized by John. This was particularly true of the religious elite. Most of the lawyers, uh, and when you hear that word lawyers in this context, you are to think of experts in the law of Moses. Most of the lawyers and the Pharisees rejected John, and they also rejected Jesus. Whereas, ironically, many of the lowly within society, yes, even the tax collectors and sinners, received the testimony of John, the baptism of John, and therefore Jesus as the Messiah. So, the theme remains the same. This passage is about the people's perception of and reaction to John and to Jesus. Some received them. Some rejected them. And here we have Jesus' analysis or explanation as to why this is. The third link between this passage and the previous one is found in the word just or justified. And this is a connection that I really want you to see, for I think it will help us to properly interpret and apply the text that is before us today. So pay careful attention to this. The word just or justified appears in our text for today, and it also appeared in the one we considered last Sunday. In the previous sermon, we considered the words of Jesus found in Luke 7.28. He spoke to the crowd saying, I tell you, Among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And in verse 29, we find this parenthetical remark from Luke. When all the people heard this, Luke tells us, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. To declare God just is to declare him to be right. In other words, these people who declared God just agreed with Jesus and with what he said about John. They agreed that John was a prophet from God and that he had declared the truth of God and the wisdom of God. They agreed that God's plan of redemption through faith in the Messiah, the plan that John and Jesus spoke of, was good and right. And so they declared God just. When they heard the words of John and of Jesus, they said, uh, to put it into my own words, yes and amen, this is good and right, we agree. This is truth from God. This was wisdom from God, and they acknowledged it. They declared God just. You see, we must notice something here. It was the common people. Yes, even many tax collectors and, and sinful people who declared God just when they heard Jesus speak so highly and approvingly of John the Baptist, of his ministry, of his message. Why? Why, why, did, why did these uh, declare God just? Well, it is because they had been baptized with the baptism of John beforehand. They had already listened to his preaching and, it had, and they went to him in the wilderness and received his baptism And this is to be contrasted with the response of the Pharisees and the lawyers. They did not declare God just. Instead, the Pharisees, we read in Luke 7.30, and the lawyers rejected the purpose, or we might say, the plan of God for, or we might say, within themselves, not having been baptized by John. And so we have this this contrast the common people, the lowly people, even tax collectors and sinners, they heard John's message and they, they received it. They heard it as the Word of God and they went to Him and they were baptized by Him. And then when He pointed to Jesus, they, they saw Jesus as the Messiah. They declared God just. But this is contrasted with the response of the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers. These did not declare God just. In contrast, they rejected God's purpose. In themselves. They said no to John the Baptist, and therefore they said no to Jesus. And we have to deal with this fact. We have to deal with the fact that it was the lowly within society who received John and Jesus predominantly. And yet the elites in society, the the well-educated ones, were the ones who rejected Jesus. What are we to make of that? I think that is a question that is here being addressed by our Lord and Savior in the words that He presents us with today. He is going to contrast those who declared God just with those who rejected the plan or purpose of God within themselves. He's going to compare them, and yet at the end say, Wisdom is justified by all her children. So there that word appears again. They declared God just, and now Jesus makes this observation. Wisdom is justified by all of her children. In other words, those who are truly wise, those who have been born from Mother Wisdom above, they will justify her. They will hear her voice. They will hear her voice and love her voice and say, yes, indeed, this is good and right. Wisdom is true. This is wisdom from above. But those who are truly fools will always find some reason to reject it. So then this passage, I think you can see, goes with the previous one. I I could have covered all of these verses last Sunday, but the more I thought about this passage, verses 31-35 through of Luke 7, the more I realized that it deserves a sermon all of its own. There there is something profound here. And it's the kind of text that uh, is hard, I think, for preachers to preach on, because there's There's obviously a depth here. There's something very profound being said here by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's almost difficult to put into words, especially in a brief sermon such as this one. What we have here in the passage that is before us today is Jesus' analysis of the people of His generation. In verse 31, Jesus asks, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? We will find that the people of His generation are very much like the people of our generation, by the way. But that is what Jesus is doing. What are the people of this generation like? And the question that was left hanging by the parenthetical remark of Luke found in Luke 7.30 was, Why did so many from amongst the religious elite reject John the Baptist and therefore Jesus? Shouldn't it have been the scribes and the Pharisees, these experts in the law of Moses, who received John and Jesus? Stated in another way, shouldn't we be concerned that it was the religious elite and the highly educated ones who rejected John and Jesus, whereas the common people, the uneducated and sinful people of the world, were the ones who received Him? It seems as if John and Jesus kind of had the wrong people on His side, on their side, in other words. Uh, they didn't have the best of the best attesting to them, you see, and, and vouching for them. They had the lowly ones who declared God to be just, as they heard the preaching of John and then Jesus. I think you can see why Jesus needed to address this issue. I'm sure that many, especially from amongst the elite of society, both Roman and Jewish, looked down upon John and Jesus with great contempt. Look at these men, look at how lowly, poor, sinful, and ignorant their followers are. Look at John, everyone thought that he would amount to something, but now he is in prison. What has come of him now? We know that The elite scoffed at Jesus like this when He hung on the cross. Luke 23, 35 tells us, And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at Him, saying, He saved others, let Him save Himself. If He is the Christ of God, the Chosen One, the soldiers also mocked Him, coming up and offering Him sour wine and saying, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. And so Jesus was scoffed. He was mocked like this by those with power as he hung on the cross. And here I am saying that he experienced this sort of scoffing all the days of his life, beginning with the very start of his public ministry, John the Baptist, too. I think the elite scoffed at these two because their followers were so lowly. So the question is, why did the elite, the well-educated and those considered wise according to the world's standards, Reject John and Jesus. And the answer that our passage for today gives is, Though they appeared to be wise, their wisdom was worldly. Truly, they were fools. And why did so many poor, uneducated, and lowly sinners follow John and Jesus? The answer that our passage gives is, Though they appeared to be foolish according to the world's standards, Truly, they were wise. By God's grace, they had received and submitted to God's wisdom from above. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children, Jesus says. In other words, those who are truly wise, those who are born from the wisdom from above, will agree with and approve of true wisdom when they see it or when they hear it. John the Baptist preached God's wisdom. Jesus, hear this, is the wisdom or word of God incarnate. And all who receive these are truly wise. They are the children of Mother Wisdom. All who reject John and Jesus, though, are fools. For in rejecting these, they reject the very wisdom or plan or purpose of God for their salvation. Now we will return to this saying, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And and to the theme of true wisdom at the end of this sermon. For now I want to walk through our text together it really is made up of three parts. Firstly, we find a comparison. Secondly, we find Jesus' explanation of the comparison. And thirdly, Jesus gets to the crux of the issue with the statement, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. In verse 31, Christ asks, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? So, he is about to analyze the people of his day and explain what they, are, what they are like and why they live as they do. And he will do so by way of comparison. The comparison is found in verse 32. Jesus says, They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. I think it is very important for us to first Picture the scene that Jesus has painted. And I think it is important for us to make note of each individual part of this scene. This really struck me as I studied this text. Jesus could have painted any scene that He wanted to. He painted this one. It's a very simple scene. It's a very brief passage. I think every little detail of this picture that Jesus paints in this comparison is to be be noticed. Firstly... Notice that Jesus compares the people of his generation to children. And by the way, it will become clear that he is thinking of those who have rejected John and him. He compares the unbelieving ones, the scribes and the Pharisees in particular, to children. And so already you can see that this is going to be a scathing critique of them. Now, I must say, children are wonderful, they are precious, they are to be honored. And cherished. Indeed, there is nothing wrong with being a child. It is good for children to be children. Children should not be expected to think and to act like adults. They must be nourished and given time to grow physically, mentally, and spiritually. They must be given time to grow in wisdom. And even Jesus had to grow like this. Isn't that interesting? Remember Luke tells us that when Jesus was a young person, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus Jesus Christ himself was once a child, and when he was a child, he thought like a child. But he grew in wisdom. He also grew in stature. He grew up as all children do until he obtained manhood and the fullness of maturity. It is good for children to be children, but children are to mature into adulthood with the passing of time. I'm sure you would agree that it is not good for an adult to be compared with a child, and that is what Jesus is here doing. He is saying these these scribes, these lawyers, these Pharisees, these people, the elite, that you esteem so highly, you know what I'll compare them to? They are like children. When an adult is compared to a child, it indicates that the adult has failed to mature. It indicates that the adult has failed to obtain true wisdom. Jesus compared the people of His generation to children. I want you to notice another thing about the picture that Jesus paints. Secondly, He portrays these children as being separated from their mother and father. Now, I do want to be careful to not make too much of this detail But I do find it interesting. At the conclusion of this text, Jesus will declare those who have received John and him, and those who have declared God just, as being the children of Mother Wisdom. That's how he will describe those who have received him. They are the children of Mother Wisdom. But these children who are playing in the marketplace are portrayed as being motherless, as if they were orphans separated from Mother Wisdom wisdom. They are children playing in the marketplace, sitting idly by in the marketplace. No mention is made of mother or father. It is perhaps a very specific observation here that maybe we could make too much of, but I think it does fit with the theme and the overall message of the text. Thirdly, I want you to notice that Jesus portrays these children as sitting in the marketplace. I'll I'll elaborate more on what I think the significance of this is in just a moment. For now, I simply want to make the observation that Jesus describes these children as sitting in the marketplace. They are sitting idly. They are not working diligently. And they are situated in the marketplace. Jesus could have placed them anywhere in His simile, couldn't He? He could have placed them anywhere. He could have situated the children in the home or in a school, or in the temple. But these locations would have given the impression that the children were pursuing higher things. Wisdom from the family, knowledge from the school, or communion with God at the temple. But no, Jesus portrays these children as sitting idly in the marketplace, for these children are worldly children. They are concerned only with the world, the things of this world, and honor within the world. I think that is what the marketplace signifies, and I will say more about that in just a moment. Fourthly, as the children sit in the marketplace, what are they doing except playing games? They wish only to be entertained and pleased by those who pass by. And if they are not pleased, they ridicule, complain, and scoff at those who have failed to meet their expectations they call out to one another in the marketplace saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. In other words, we wanted you to dance when we played the happy and joyous song. Why didn't you dance? And we wanted you to cry when we played the sad, mournful song. Why didn't you cry? Why didn't you conform yourselves to our expectations? You've let us down. And those children who listen to the happy music and sad song Were moved by neither as they should have been. They cried out to one another, saying these things. We played a happy song and you you didn't dance. They were not appropriately moved by the happy song that they heard, but they were stubborn. They refused to be moved as they should by the happy song. And neither were they moved to sad emotions by the mournful song as they should have been, but they stubbornly refused to be moved even by the mournful song. It is quite an interesting and a bit complex picture here that Jesus paints of these children playing in the marketplace, wishing to be entertained, wishing to be pleased, wishing that others would conform themselves to their desires. Fifthly, Jesus portrays these children as being never pleased. They constantly find fault. They constantly find reason to complain. You've probably met children like this. They are impossible to console And with discipline, a child ought to grow out of this. But there is little hope for these self-centered, orphan children who spend all of their time playing in the marketplace and seeking to be pleased by the things of this world. Well, I hope the picture that Jesus painted is clear in your mind. To what shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like, he asked. They are like children. Sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. The real question is, what does this mean? What does this mean? Who do these children represent? And what do their actions symbolize? In verses 33 through 34, Jesus explains his simile, saying, For... That word is important. For, he's going to give an explanation for the picture that he has just painted. For, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So who do these children represent? They, they represent those who rejected John the Baptist and Jesus. In particular, the children represent many of the scribes, lawyers, and Pharisees. And why did Jesus compare these to children? I think He did so to say that they really lacked wisdom. Though they thought themselves to be wise, and though many in the world considered them to be wise, they showed by their rejection of John and Jesus and their declaration of the wisdom of God from above that they were truly fools. The wisdom, uh, they they appeared to be wise, The, the, the world held them in high esteem. But, in fact, they were fools and they proved themselves to be fools by their rejection of the Word of God which John preached and by their rejection of the Messiah who is the wisdom of God incarnate. Now, I ask, why did Jesus situate these children in the marketplace in His simile? I think the answer is to condemn the scribes and the Pharisees for their worldliness. As I have said, He could have placed them anywhere He could have placed them in the family room, a school, or in the temple, but placing them in those locations would have given the impression that they were pursuing and maybe even gaining true wisdom to one degree or another. It would have signified that these men were devoted to good and honorable pursuits if he would have situated them in in these places. They were living for the things of the world, though. And so he situates these children in the marketplace to show that these scribes and Pharisees were worldly, They were living for the things of this world. They were living for the riches and pleasures of this world and the honor of this world. If they possessed any wisdom at all, it was not the wisdom from above, but it was the wisdom of this world that they possessed, which is not true wisdom. You know, when I began to study this text, I had a suspicion that the location of the marketplace carried some symbolism. It's a very specific detail that Jesus gives And so I decided to do a simple little word study on the word marketplace to see if it would bring some clarity. How do the scriptures use the word marketplace? Better yet, does the word appear elsewhere in Luke's gospel? And if so, will that shed some light on the significance of this location that Jesus has chosen? Two verses in Luke seemed important to me. And they did confirm my suspicions about the symbolism. Listen to Luke 11, 43. Here Jesus says this, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. You love this. This is what you are in love with, you scribes and Pharisees. You love to be honored in the synagogues, to have the very best seats, and you love to spend your time Where? In the marketplace, where you are honored by others, where others greet you and, and, and speak highly of you and, and puff you up in your pride. And in Luke 20, verse 46, Jesus warns the people, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings where in the marketplaces and the best seats and the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. The marketplace was a place to buy and sell, kind of like our grocery stores, I guess you could say. But but in those days, it was much more than that. It was a place for social interaction. It was a cultural hub of sorts. There, honor was shown to those of high standing in society. And the scribes and Pharisees loved to linger long in that place and to draw attention to themselves. It is no wonder that Jesus situated these children there in the marketplace in his simile. He critiques these elite, the scribes and the Pharisees in particular, for being childish and foolish, for loving the world and the things of this world, for being in love with the honor that the world gives. Now I should say there is nothing wrong with visiting the marketplace, is there? After all, to live in this world, we need the things of this world. We need bread, we need meat, etc., And there is nothing wrong with social interaction. It also is needed and it is good. However, these children in the simile did not visit the marketplace to do business there, did they? But rather, they sat in the marketplace. They lingered there. They played there. And by children, I mean the prideful, unbelieving, unwise, and worldly scribes and Pharisees about whom Jesus was speaking Now what are we to make of the sad songs and the happy music that these children played in the marketplace? What do they signify in Jesus' simile? It seems to me that they signify the ministry of Jesus and John the Baptist, respectively. The ministry of John the Baptist can be compared to a sad, mournful song. We know that John lived an ascetic life of prayer and fasting. He wore rough clothes. He subsisted on locust and wild honey. He preached a message of repentance. He said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That is Luke 3, 7-9. through 9. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He came preaching law and gospel, but I think we could say that the stress was placed on the law with John. And how did these children, or those whom these children represent, respond to the mournful dirge of John the Baptist? How did they respond? Here I am talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. They they heard the mournful song, the sad song, of John the Baptist. And how... And how did they respond to that? Well, they should have wept. They should have mourned concerning their sin, shouldn't they have? But they did not. These scribes and the Pharisees, they heard the preaching of John the Baptist. They considered his, his serious way of life. And they were not moved by it. They were not moved by it as in the least. And that is what Jesus critiques. In verse 33, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. He's lived out in the wilderness. He's lived an ascetic life, a difficult life, a hard life. He came and he has preached a hard message, a message about sin and repentance and the need to turn from it. And what did you do, you scribes and Pharisees? You brushed him off. You brushed him off. You put him to the side by saying, He has a demon. They were not moved by the sad song that John the Baptist sang. They did not mourn. They did not mourn. But they only brushed Him to the side, saying, He has a demon. He's too serious. He's too harsh. He's too extreme. And so they did not receive His message. The ministry of Jesus, on the other hand, can be compared to the happy song. No doubt Jesus commands repentance too. But we see that He was abundantly gracious and kind to sinners. And those who were sick, and the weak, and the poor, he touched them, he healed them, he ate with them. This is what Jesus mentions in verse 34. He says, the Son of Man, and that is his favorite title for himself, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, they brush Jesus to the side also. The scribes and Pharisees, they're like children who just will never be pleased with anything. How should they have responded to the happy song, the gracious and joyous song of Jesus, the Son of Man? They should have danced, right? Just like children tend to dance when someone plays a flute for them. They should have danced. That's how they should have responded to His happy message. But they refused. And they brushed Jesus to the side saying, Criticizing him with these words. He's a glutton. He, he eats with the people. He does not fast as we fast. But he eats like a common man. And he drinks with the people like a common man. And they slanderously accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. You understand, I hope, what this simile is all about. Jesus is painting a picture of, of the world and, and of those who Persist in their unbelief. They are fools. And when wisdom, wisdom from above, comes to them, they are going to dig their heels in and find some way to dismiss the wisdom of God from above. No, too serious, too harsh, uh, no, too loose in, in, the, in his living. We will receive neither John nor Jesus. They should have mourned, they should have danced, but they would do neither. These children refused to be moved to tears by the mournful song of John the Baptist, and they refused to dance to the joyous tune played by Jesus. Instead of responding appropriately to the wisdom of John and Jesus, they wished to have John and Jesus respond to them. I think that is the picture here. They wished to have John and Jesus respond to them. We will play the song, and you will dance for us, or you will mourn for us, or so they would have it be. The last question I have concerning the meaning of Jesus' simile is, what is the significance of the children being without mother or father in the marketplace? And I think it must mean something. And as we continue on in our text, and especially consider Jesus' words, yet wisdom is justified by all her children, I think it becomes clear. These children in the marketplace and those they represent were orphans as it pertains to their connection to mother wisdom. They were disconnected from mother wisdom And their response to John and Jesus proved it. For John came preaching wisdom from above, and Jesus is the wisdom and word of God incarnate. And yet these scribes, lawyers and Pharisees, rejected the purpose or plan of God in themselves. But wisdom will be justified, that is to say declared right or proved right, by her children. And this is the crux of the matter. And I want you to notice just a few things about this saying. First of all, you should know that wisdom is truth. To have wisdom is to know the truth and to live according to it. Wisdom is justified by all of our children, Christ says. What does he mean? Well, notice these things. Firstly, notice that in this saying, wisdom is personified as a woman. Isn't that interesting? Wisdom is here called a a a mother, a mother. Wisdom is here referred to as her. Wisdom is justified by all of her children. So wisdom, of course, does not have a gender, but it is personified as a woman here in this passage. And this, if we know our Bibles, should immediately remind us of the book of Proverbs, wherein wisdom is famously personified as a woman throughout we read Proverbs 1 at the beginning of this sermon. I want you to listen again just to verse 20. There, Proverbs 1 says, verse 20, Wisdom cries aloud in the street, and in the markets she raises her voice. Now isn't that interesting? Did you notice that connection between Proverbs one twenty and Jesus' words here? Where is uh, wisdom crying aloud in Proverbs 1? In the streets... In the marketplaces. The picture is this wisdom is present in the world. Wisdom is present in the world, and she is crying out to the world. She's crying out in the streets. She's even crying out in the marketplaces. I continue now to quote Proverbs one twenty: At the head of the noisy streets she cries out, at the entrance of the city gate she speaks. And what does she say? What is she saying? She's crying out to those who are in the marketplaces and in the streets. Yes, she's crying out even to these orphan children who are who are playing and she is saying, "How long, o simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will you scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge?" Now I will not reread the entire proverb. I think you're able to see that when Jesus said what he said here about children playing in the marketplace, and wisdom being justified by all of her children. He definitely has Proverbs 1 in the back of his mind. He wants us to go there. He is suggesting that we go there to consider what true wisdom is and how it is to be obtained. When he compares the scribes and the Pharisees to children sitting and playing in the marketplaces, he is describing them as people consumed with the world, the cares of this world, the pleasures and honors of this world, so much so that they cannot even hear the voice of of wisdom when she calls out. And when she did call out to them, when did she do it? Well, we are to say it was through the preaching of John the Baptist. It was through the preaching of Christ. As John the Baptist and Christ came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, they were calling out and and, and preaching wisdom to the people. And yet so many would not hear it. They were deaf to it because they were so consumed with the world and the things of this world. But wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, the true children of wisdom, they will hear her voice and they will declare her to be right and good and just. Secondly, I want you to notice that wisdom is not only personified as a woman here by our Lord, but as a mother who begets children. Brothers and sisters, I think there is something very profound here, something very insightful Would you think with me for a moment about the nature of the relationship between a mother and a child? It's really amazing, isn't it? A mother begets her children. A mother, women, have this ability to bring children into existence. (laughs) It's an incredible thing to consider. But a mother begets her children. Children do not beget their mother. Stated differently, A mother exists independently from her children, and then she brings them into existence. Never does a child exist independently from their mother and bring her into existence. No, a mother gives birth to her children. A mother nurses them. A mother teaches them. And then a mother disciplines them to maturity. And so it is with the relationship between true wisdom and those who grow to be wise. Truly wise people are born from wisdom. They discover wisdom. They learn wisdom. They submit to wisdom. Wisdom, that is to say, truth, exists outside of them, and they, by the grace of God, who alone is wise, see First 1 Timothy 1.17, they come to see and to know wisdom. Wisdom is not created by man. It can only be recognized, submitted unto, and received. That is the point that I am here making. Wisdom is a mother that begets children, you see. And I think this has been a perennial problem where people believe that they have the power and the authority to create truth for themselves or to grow wise in and of themselves. But really in so doing, if they will not honor God, if they will not fear God and submit themselves to His Word and to His revelation, both in nature and in, and in Scripture, they will wind up being truly fools. Their wisdom, whatever wisdom they possess, is not wisdom from above. It is the wisdom of this world. It is the wisdom of their own mind. And as intelligent as they may be, they are fools indeed if they do not honor God, who is alone wise. All of this does remind me of what Paul says about true wisdom in 1 Corinthians one eighteen and following I want to read this passage to you because I think it is deeply connected with with Proverbs 1 and with what we are considering in Luke 7. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, in verses 18 and following. He speaks to Christians, saying, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, to those who are dead in their sins and on their way to hell, when they hear about the word of the cross... They say, that's foolish. But, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul then asks, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? He's speaking of the church. Where's where's the wise person? Wise according to this world. Where's the scribe in the church? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, that is through Christ, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What, what a wonderful statement. Here Paul is saying the same thing that Jesus has said in the phrase, but wisdom is justified by all her children. What he is saying is that those who are called of God, those who are called by His Word and Spirit, when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they hear about the cross of Christ, when they hear about God's plan of salvation, and how it has been accomplished, when they hear that they go, this is the wisdom of God, it is truth, amen. And they justify God. They justify wisdom. But what does the fool do? The fool digs his heels in as hard as he can. Because he is dead in sin, because his mind is darkened to the true wisdom of God, he digs his heel in as hard as he can, and he says no. Uh, John the Baptist was a drunkard. Or, no, wait, that's not it. John the Baptist, he had a demon. Jesus was a a glutton and a drunkard. They find ways to dismiss the wisdom from above, you see. Uh, That is what Paul is dealing with here. He says, For those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, he goes on to say, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. He's speaking to the church in Corinth. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Did you hear that phrase? Here is how Paul describes Jesus. You you, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one who boasts boast in the Lord. It's, it's marvelous what Paul says here. He looks out upon the church in Corinth and says, listen, the world thinks you're foolish, but you are truly wise in Christ Jesus. And this is how God has determined to do things. He has determined to, in general, call the weak and the foolish of the world to Himself through faith in Jesus the Messiah, who is the very wisdom of God for us. The question I must ask you is this. Are you a child of wisdom from above? Have you been born of her? Have you recognized her voice, declared her to be just and good and right, submitted to her teaching and to her discipline? Are you a true child of wisdom? or are you one of these foolish children sitting idly in the marketplace of this world wasting your days being concerned only with the things of this world seeking to be entertained and distracted by the pleasures of this world seeking honor in this world and attempting others in attempting to force others to conform to your ways and your wishes this is how the world Constantly lives. The unbelieving world, they are rightly compared to children playing in the marketplace. That is all they do day after day. And then they die. And then they stand before God, the judge. But those who are wise by the grace of God have lifted their eyes up from this earth to heaven. They have confessed God alone is wise. They have confessed that God is wisdom. He is the source of all wisdom. And to be wise, one must first acknowledge and submit to Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight, says Proverbs 9.10. This is where wisdom begins. It begins with the fear of the Lord. But I want to say to you that it does not end there. The one who is wise will not only fear the Lord and acknowledge the Lord's existence, the one who is wise will also see that God has spoken. He has revealed truth and wisdom throughout the world He has made, and He has done so much more clearly through His Holy Word. He has spoken through the prophets of old. He has spoken supremely through Christ Jesus, who is the Word of God incarnate. Paul, in the passage we have just read, refers to Jesus as wisdom from God. And now we have the Scriptures. So then those who are truly wise will not only fear the Lord, they will also hear God's voice, the voice of wisdom itself, in the Scriptures and declare Him to be just. Those who are wise put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and they receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. That is James 1.21. The one who is wise will also recognize the wisdom of God's plan of redemption through faith in Jesus the Messiah who lived, died, and rose again for sinners. Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. For those who are perishing, when they hear of God's plan of salvation, when they hear that salvation has been obtained through this Jesus who was born of a virgin and laid in a manger, this Jesus who lived a poor and humble life, this Jesus who was brutally beaten and hung on a cross, when they hear that salvation has been obtained with, by this one, they scoff. This is foolishness. This is foolishness. I don't even think we need a Savior. This is nonsense. And, and if we did need a Savior, He wouldn't look like this. He wouldn't look so pitiful and weak. He would have been strong. He would have been powerful. He would have been noble. You see, the non-believer, the one who is unregenerate, will look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's plan of redemption and they will say, it is folly. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The way to wisdom, friends, begins with the fear of the Lord. It continues through submission to God's Word. And it reaches its pinnacle at the cross of Christ, where the eternal Word of God incarnate was crucified for us. Wisdom will be justified by her children. And this is why we are content to simply preach Christ crucified and risen here in this place. The world will consider the message of the cross to be falling. Never will they be satisfied. Never will they be satisfied. I think you see where I'm going with this. I think there is this tendency amongst churches today to try to please the non-believing world, to soften the message of the gospel, to not say offensive things, but to appeal to the world, to the non-believing world. This is foolishness. This is utter foolishness. It may be that churches will grow in this way for a time. But unless God regenerates a person, you see, unless He calls a person to Himself by His Word and Spirit, they will not remain in Christ. They will flourish for a time, perhaps. But when the scorching heat of the sun burns down upon them, they will will wither, you see. Or when the cares of this world grow up, they will be choked out. It is foolishness for a church or for a minister to to try to appeal to the world in order to bring people in. What must a minister do? He must preach the Word of God. He must preach Christ crucified and risen, knowing that wisdom will be justified by her children. Those who are called by God, by His Word and Spirit, those who are born from Mother Wisdom above, they will hear the voice of wisdom and they will say yes and amen to it. And so we are satisfied to preach Christ crucified and risen. The world will find a reason to be dissatisfied. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. But those born from above, those called inwardly and effectually by the grace of God will hear the voice of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ and they will rejoice at it. Jews demand signs, Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God And the wisdom of God. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven. I do pray that you would make us wise. If there are any here who do not yet have faith in Christ. I pray that you would call them to yourself through Him. That they would see Him, Christ, crucified and risen. As the wisdom of God. And for all who do have faith in Christ. Who have been born from wisdom above. I pray that we would increase in wisdom. May we love your word, O God. May we submit ourselves to it. May we conform ourselves to your holy word. May we never be so foolish to attempt to cause you to conform to us, O God. Give us these meek and submissive attitudes, O Lord, so that we might grow in wisdom all the days of our life and thus bring honor to you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.